The Mystery of Charles Dickens, Volume 4 of Famous Affinities of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellie. Famous Affinities of History by Lyndon Orr. Volume 4. The Mystery of Charles Dickens. Perhaps no public man in the English-speaking world in the last century was so widely and intimately known as Charles Dickens. From his eighteenth year, when he won his first success in journalism, down through his series of brilliant triumphs in fiction, he was more and more a conspicuous figure, living in the blaze of an intense publicity. He met everyone and knew everyone, and was the companion of every kind of man and woman. He loved to frequent the caves of harmony, which Zachary has immortalized, and was a member of all the best bohemian clubs of London. Actors, authors, good fellows generally were his intimate friends, and his acquaintance extended far beyond into the homes of merchants and lawyers, to the mansions of the proudest nobles. Indeed, he seemed to be almost a universal friend. One remembers, for instance, how he was called in to arbitrate between Zachary and George Augustus Seller, who had quarrelled. One remembers how Lord Brian's daughter, Lady Loveless, when upon her sick bed, used to send for Dickens, because there was something in his genial, sympathetic manner that soothed her. Crushing pieces of ice between her teeth in agony, she would speak to him, and he would answer her in his rich, manly tones, until she was comforted and felt able to endure more hours of pain without complaint. Dickens was a jovial soul. His books fairly steam with Christmas cheer and hot punch and the savour of plum puddings, very much as do his letters to his intimate friends. Everybody knew Dickens. He could not dine in public without attracting attention, and when he left the dining-room his admirers would descend upon his table and carry off eggshells, orange peels, and other things that remained behind, so that they might have memorials of this much-loved writer. Those who knew him only by sight would often stop him in the streets and ask the privilege of shaking hands with him. So different was he from, let us say, Tennyson, who was as great an Englishman in his way as Dickens, but who kept himself aloof and saw few strangers. It is hard to associate anything like mystery with Dickens, though he was fond of mystery as an intellectual diversion, and his last unfinished novel was The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Moreover, no one admired more than he those complex plots which Wilkie Collins used to weave under the influence of Laudanum. But as for his own life, it seemed so normal, so free from anything approaching mystery, that we can scarcely believe it to have been tinged with darker colors than those which appeared upon the surface. A part of this mystery is plain enough, the other part is still obscure, or of such a character that one does not care to bring it wholly to the light. It had to do with his various relations with women. The world at large thinks that it knows this chapter in the life of Dickens, and that it refers wholly to his unfortunate disagreement with his wife. To be sure, this is a chapter that is writ large in all his biographies, and yet it is nowhere correctly told. His chosen biographer was John Forster, whose life of Charles Dickens in three volumes must remain the standard work. But even Forster, we may assume through tact, has not set down all that he could, although he gives a clue. As is well known, Dickens married Miss Catherine Hoggers when he was only twenty-four. He had just published his sketches by Boss, the copyright of which he sold for a hundred pounds, and was beginning the Pickwick Papers. About this time his publisher brought M. P. Willis down to Furnival's Inn to see the man whom Willis called a young paragraphist for the Morning Chronicle. Willis thus sketches Dickens and his surroundings. 
in the most crowded part of holborn within a door or two of the bull and mouse inn we pulled up at the entrance of a large building used for lawyers chambers i followed by a long flight of stairs to an upper story and was ushered into an uncarpeted and bleak-looking room with a deal-table two or three chairs and a few books a small boy and mr dickens for the contents i was only struck at first with one thing and i made a memorandum of it that evening as the strongest instance i had seen of english obsequiousness to employers the degree to which the poor author was overpowered with the honour of his publisher's visit i remember saying to myself as i sat down on a rickety chair my good fellow if you were in america with that fine face and your ready quill you would have no need to be condescended by a publisher dickens was dressed very much as he has since described dick swiveller minus the swell look his hair was cropped close to his head his clothes scant though jauntily cut and after changing a ragged office coat for a shabby blue he stood by the door collarless and buttoned up the very personification of a close sailor to the wind before his interview with willis which dickens always repudiated he had become something of a celebrity among the newspaper men with whom he worked as a stenographer as every one knows he had had a hard time in his early years working in a blackening shop and feeling too keenly the ignominious position of which a less sensitive boy would probably have thought nothing then he became a shorthand reporter and was busy at his work so that he had little time for amusements it was generally supposed that no love affair entered his life until he met catherine hoggarth whom he married soon after making her acquaintance people who are eager at ferreting out unimportant facts about important men had unanimously come to the conclusion that up to the age of twenty dickens was entirely fancy-free it was left to an american to disclose the fact that this was not the case but that even in his teens he had been captivated by a girl of about his own age inasmuch as the only reproach that was ever made against dickens was based upon his love affairs let us go back and trace them from his early one to the very last which must yet for some years at least remain a mystery everything that is known about his first affair is contained in a book very beautifully printed but inaccessible to most readers some years ago mr william k bixby of st louis found in london a collector of curious this man had in his stock a number of letters which had passed between a miss maria Beatnell and charles dickens when the two were about nineteen and the second package of letters representing a later acquaintance about eighteen fifty five at which time miss Beatnell had been married for a long time to a mr henry louis winter at twelve at tillery place london the copyright laws of great britain would not allow mr bixby to publish the letter in that country and he did not care to give them to the public here therefore he presented them to the bibliophile society with the understanding that four hundred and ninety-three copies with the bibliophile bookplate were to be printed and distributed among the members of the society a few additional copies were struck off but these did not bear the bibliophile bookplate only two copies are available for other readers and to peruse these it is necessary to visit the congressional library in washington where they were placed on july twenty fourth nineteen eight these letters from two series the first written to miss Beatnell in or about eighteen twenty nine and the second written to mrs winter formerly miss Beatnell, in eighteen fifty five the book also contains an introduction by henry h harper who sets forth some theories which the facts in my opinion do not support and there are a number of interesting portraits especially one of miss Beatnell in eighteen twenty nine a lovely girl with dark curls another shows her in eighteen fifty five 
when she writes of herself as old and fat, thereby doing herself a great deal of injustice, for although she had lost her youthful beauty, she was a very presentable woman of middle age, but one who could not be particularly noticed in any company. Summing up briefly these different letters, it may be said in the first set Dickens wrote to the lady eternally, but by no means passionately. From what he says, it is plain enough that she did not respond to his feeling, and that presently she left London and went to Paris, for her family was well-to-do, while Dickens was living from hand to mouth. In the second set of letters, written long afterward, Mrs. Winter seems to have set her cap at the now famous author, but at that time he was courted by everyone, and had long ago forgotten the lady who had so easily dismissed him in his younger days. In 1855 Mrs. Winter seems to have reproached him for not having been more constant in the past, but he replied, You answered me coldly and reproachfully, and so I went my way. Mr. Harper, in his introduction, tries very hard to prove that in writing David Copperfield, Dickens drew the character of Dora from Mrs. Bidnell. It is a dangerous thing to say from whom any character in a novel is drawn. An author takes whatever suits his purpose in circumstance and fancy, and blends them all into one consistent whole, which is not to be identified with any individual. There is little reason to think that the most intimate friends of Dickens and of his family were mistaken through all the years when they were certain that the boy-husband and the girl-wife of David Copperfield were suggested by any one save Dickens himself and Catherine Hoggarth. Why should he have gone back to a mere passing fancy to a girl who did not care for him, and who had no influence on his life, instead of picturing as David's first wife, one whom he deeply loved, whom he married, who was the mother of his children, and who made a great part of his career, even that part which was inwardly half tragic and wholly mournful? Miss Bidnell may have been the original of Flora in Little Dorrit, though even this is doubtful. The character was at the time ascribed to a Miss Anna Maria Lay whom Dickens sometimes flirted with and sometimes caricatured. When Dickens came to know George Hogarth, who was one of his colleagues on the staff of the Morning Chronicle, he met Hogarth's daughters, Catherine, Georgina, and Mary, and at once fell adherently in love with Catherine, the eldest and prettiest of the three. He himself was almost girlish, with his fair complexion and light wavy hair, so that the famous sketch by Maclise has a remarkable charm yet nobody could really say with truth that any one of the three girls was beautiful. Georgina Hoggarth, however, was sweet-tempered and of a motherly disposition. It may be that in a fashion she loved Dickens all her life, as she remained with him after he parted from her sister, taking the utmost care of his children, and looking out with unselfish fidelity for his many needs. It was Mary, however, the youngest of the Hoggarths, who lived with the Dickenses during the first twelve months of their married life. To Dickens, she was like a favorite sister, and when she died very suddenly in her eighteenth year, her loss was a great shock to him. It was believed for a long time, in fact until their separation, that Dickens and his wife were extremely happy in their home life. His writings glorified all that was domestic, and paid many tender tributes to the joys of family affection. When the separation came, the whole world was shocked, and yet rather early in Dickens' married life there was more or less infelicity. In his retrospection of an active life, Mr. John Bicklow writes a few sentences which are interesting for their frankness, and which give us certain hints. Mrs. Dickens was not a handsome woman, though stout, hearty, and matronly. There was something a little doubtful about her eye, and I thought her endowed with a temper that might be very violent when roused, though not easily rousable. 
Mrs. Caulfield told me that Miss Teeman, I think that is the name, was the source of the difficulty between Mrs. Dickens and her husband. She played in private theatricals with Dickens, and he sent her a portrait in approach, which met with an accident requiring it to be sent to the jewellers to be mended. The jeweller, noticing Mr. Dickens' initials, sent it to his house. Mrs. Dickens' sister, who had always been in love with him and was jealous of Miss Teeman, told Mrs. Dickens of the brooch, and she mounted her husband with comb and brush. This, no doubt, was Mrs. Dickens' version in the main. A few evenings later I saw Miss Teeman in the Haymarket Theatre, playing with Buckstone and Mr. and Mrs. Charles Matthews. She seemed rather a small cause for such a serious result, passably pretty, but not much of an actress. Here, in one passage, we have an imitation that Mrs. Dickens had a temper that was easily roused, that Dickens himself was interested in an actress, and that Miss Hoggarth had always been in love with him and was jealous of Miss Teeman. Some years before this time, however, there had been growing in the mind of Dickens a certain formless discontent, something to which he could not give a name, yet which cast over him the shadow of disappointment. He expressed the same feeling in David Copperfield when he spoke of David's life with Dora. It seemed to come from the fact that he had grown to be a man, while his wife still remained a child. A passage or two may be quoted from the novel, so that we may set them beside passages in Dickens' own life, which we know to have referred to his own wife, and not to any such nebulous person as Mrs. Winter. The shadow I have mentioned was not to be between us any more, but was to rest wholly on my heart. How did that fall? The old unhappy feeling pervaded my life. It was deepened, if it were changed at all, but it was as undefined as ever, and it rest me like a strain of sorrowful music, faintly heard in the night. I loved my wife dearly, but the happiness I had vaguely anticipated once was not the happiness I enjoyed, and there was always something wanting. What I missed I still regarded as something that had been a dream of my youthful fancy, that was incapable of realization that I was now discovering to be so, with some natural pain, as all men did. But that it would have been better for me if my wife could have helped me more, shared the many thoughts in which I had no partner, and that this might have been, I knew. What I am describing slumbered and half awoke and slept again in the innermost recesses of my mind. There was no evidence of it to me. I knew of no influence it had in anything I said or did. I bore the weight of all our little cares and all my projects. There can be no little disparity in marriage like unsuitability of mind and purpose. These words I remembered. I had endeavored to adopt Dora to myself and found it impracticable. It remained for me to adapt myself to Dora to share with her what I could, and be happy, to be on my own shoulders what I must, and be still happy. Thus wrote Dickens in his fictitious character, of his fictitious wife. Let us see how he wrote, and how he acted in his own person, and of his real wife. As early as 1856 he showed a curious and restless activity, as of one who was trying to rid himself of unpleasant thoughts. Mr. Forster says that he began to feel the strain upon his invention, a certain disquietude and the necessity for jotting down memoranda in notebooks, so as to assist his memory and his imagination. He began to long for solitude. He would take long, aimless rambles into the country, returning at no particular time or season. He once wrote to Forster, I have had dreadful thoughts of getting away somewhere altogether by myself. If I could have managed it, I think I might have gone to the Pyrenees for six months. I have visions of living for half a year or so in all sorts of inaccessible places, and of opening a new book therein. 
a floating idea of going up above the snow-line and living in some astonishing convent hovers over me what do these cryptic utterances mean at first both in his novel and his letters they are obscure but before long in each they become more definite in eighteen fifty six we find these sentences among his letters the old days the old days shall i ever i wonder get the frame of mind back as it used to be then something of it perhaps but never quite as it used to be i find the skeleton in my domestic closet is becoming a pretty big one his next letter draws the veil and shows plainly what he means poor catherine and i are not made for each other and there is no help for it it is not only that she makes me uneasy and unhappy but that i make her so too and much more so we are strangely ill-assorted for the bond that exists between us then he goes on to say that she would have been a thousand times happier if she had been married to another man he speaks of incompatibility the difference of temperaments in fact it is the same old story with which we have become so familiar and which is both as old as the hills and as new as this morning's newspaper naturally also things grow worse rather than better dickens comes to speak half jocularly of the plunge and calculates as to what effect it will have on his public readings he kept back the announcement of the plunge until after he had given several readings then on april twenty ninth eighteen fifty eight mrs dickens left his home his eldest son went to live with the mother the rest of the children remained with their father while his daughter mary nominally presided over the house in the background however georgina hoggers who seemed all through her life have cared for dickens more than for her sister remained as a sort of guide and guardian for his children this arrangement was a private matter and should not have been brought to public attention but it was impossible to suppress all gossip about so prominent a man much of the gossip was exaggerated and when it came to the notice of dickens it stung him so severely as to lead him into issuing a public justification of his cause he published a statement in household words which led to many other letters in other periodicals and finally a long one from him which was printed in the new york tribune addressed to his friend mr arthur smith dickens afterward declared that he had written this letter as a strictly personal and private one in order to correct false rumors and scandals mr smith naturally thought that the statement was intended for publication but dickens always spoke of it as the violated letter by his allusions to a difference of temperament and to incompatibility dickens no doubt meant that his wife had ceased to be to him the same companion that she had been in days gone by as in so many cases she had not changed while he had he had grown out of the sphere in which he had been born associated with blackening boys and quilt printers and had become one of the great men of his time whose genius was universally admired mr bicklow saw mrs dickens as she really was a commonplace woman endowed with the temper of a vixen and disposed to outbursts of actual violence when her jealousy was roused it was impossible that the two could have remained together when in intellect and sympathy they were so far apart there is nothing strange about their separation except the exceedingly bad taste with which dickens made it a public affair it is safe to assume that he felt the need for a different mate and that he found one is evident enough from the hints and bits of innuendo that are found in the writings of his contemporaries he became a pleasure lover but more than that he needed one who could understand his moods and match them one who could please his tastes and one who could give him that admiration she felt to be his due for he was always anxious to be praised and his letters are full of anecdotes relating to his love of praise 
one does not wish to follow out these clues too closely it is certain that neither miss bidnell as a girl nor mrs winter as a matron made any serious appeal to him the actresses who have been often mentioned in connection with his name were for the most part mere passing favourites the woman who in his life was dora made him feel the same incompleteness that he has described in his best-known book the companion to whom he clung in his later years was neither a light-minded creature like miss bidnell or an undeveloped high-tempered woman like the one he married nor a mere domestic friendly creature like georgina hogarth ought we to venture upon a quest which shall solve this mystery in the life of charles dickens in his last will and testament drawn up and signed by him about a year before his death the first paragraph reads as follows i charles dickens of gladshill place highham in the county of kent hereby revoke all my former wills and codices and declare this to be my last will and testament i have the sum of one thousand pounds free of legacy duty to miss ellen lawless turnan late of horton place Amptill square in the county of middlesex in connection with this read mr john bigelow's careless jottings made some fifteen years before remember the miss teeman about whose name he was not quite certain the hogger's sister's dislike of her and the mysterious figure in the background of the novelist's later life then consider the first bequest in his will which leaves a substantial sum to one who was neither a relative nor subordinate but may we assume more than an ordinary friend End of the mystery of charles dickens recording by ellie august two thousand and nine